Hi, this is Li Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha Wisdom Tree ETFs. Welcome to China of Tomorrow podcast series, where we navigate China, India, Japan, and the broad emerging markets with members of Wisdom Tree and other industry leaders. Hi. Today is March 2nd, 2023. Our guest is Leland Miller, co-founder and CEO of China Beige Book and noted authority on China's economy and financial system with extensive experience in Asia and U.S. Um, China February PMI just you know surprised the market, even though January and February Chinese data are usually uh, has a big seasonality factor. So it's a great time to talk with uh, Leland. And hi, tell us about yourself and China Beige Book. Well, China Beige Book is the largest private data collection operation in the world uh, inside a closed economy. Uh, you know, we started it up over a decade ago, trying to get the real story on all the different Chinas that exist. One of the major problems we have with not just official data, but but any type of singular, you know, piece of data, is that you have uh, a fifty one point two with a PMI or a sixty six point eight percent GDP growth, supposedly representing China, but China is big. China is multifaceted. China is has a lot of different sub-economies within it. And so it's really important to understand the story of not just large state firms on the coast or smaller firms you know, in the periphery, but understand all the different stories of China. And so what we set out to do a decade ago and have been building up ever since is try to create a picture of all of China in an aggregated way uh, that told, tells the story of, of private firms and state firms, that tells the story of large firms and small firms, coastal firms and firms in the center and firms in the periphery, so that we had a real idea of what was happening across all of China and not just the parts of China that everyone may be visiting as a tourist uh, like Beijing and Shanghai. Thank you. Um, what kinds of data? I noticed that recently you guys came out a very good um, physical uh, you know, tracker, physical stimulus tracker, monetary stimulus tracker. But in general, what kinds of data do you have and what kinds of clients uh, use your data? Uh, no need to specify names, but probably give us uh, examples on how how your clients uh, use your data. Uh, yeah, so we, um, we collect corporate performance data uh, across, it was thousands, now it's tens of thousands of firms across the economy. And what we try to do is, is track how corporates are doing in terms of corporate performance, but but not just from the growth perspective. We look at jobs, what, what's happening in the labor market, what's happening with inflation dynamics, uh, probably most important, what's happening in the credit environment, and and also the shadow finance environment. So how are firms funding themselves? What are they paying for, for capital? Uh, one, you know, again, one of the major problems with looking at China is that if you just have one lens and you're just looking at a growth number, it's hard to understand what's really going on beneath the surface and where the hand of policy is from the government and what are the worries and, and what's looking good and what's looking bad because growth numbers can be manipulated or targeted and met. And that doesn't tell you much about what the underlying strength and weaknesses of the economy. So we have tried to have a, a, a three-dimensional view um, from the ground up, from these thousands and thousands and thousands of firms telling us their story and understand, you know, what's going well, what's not going well, and uh, and using that to uh, to paint a picture of China and where it's going. Do you see any changes in the last two years uh, in your interaction with clients? 
as um, you know, geopolitics increasingly take over China discussion, uh, are they looking for like different kinds of data or are they putting even more or less weight on Chinese fundamental data? Well, I think they're realizing that there are limits to Chinese fundamental data. And so uh, a lot of what we're doing, more and more of what I'm doing on a daily basis has to do with the policy side of things, both in terms of forecasting where policy is going from Beijing and also forecasting what's happening from the DC side so you understand that the, you know, the ups and downs in the US-China relationship. Uh, I was in Manhattan for almost 20 years. I moved down to DC because this has become such an important part of what we do. So I think that understanding the, the, the policy has become absolutely critical um, to understanding where things are going. But even if you just look at the, at the, at the China side of things, for, forget, forget the beltway politics and just look at what's happening in terms of, of, of policy coming out of Beijing. 2022 was just this case study in, in everyone getting it wrong. Uh, if you remember, you know, starting in, in mid-2021, the economy was doing poorly. All you read, all you saw were, were China shops out there forecasting stimulus. Stimulus this. We're always a day away from stimulus. We're always a, a day away from the government, you know, making everything better. And they didn't understand that that's not what, what Beijing's economic growth model and stimulus playbook was about anymore. So they kept putting out wrong forecasts and wrong forecasts and things are going to get better and stimulus is going to go up. And it kept getting wrong and wrong and wrong. And, and the beauty of this was we track credit flows. You know, we, we ultimately built this monetary stimulus index and a fiscal stimulus index that you referred to. Uh, but we were tracking our firms borrowing. What are they borrowing at? You know, our, our transportation construction firms building infrastructure. We, you know, we could watch to see whether these announcements about stimulus were actually resulting in activity. And time and time again, what we found is that they weren't in 21, they weren't in 2022. So it's great to have a view on where Beijing's mindset is, but it's very hard to do unless you have data supporting that. And you know, through our data, we could see that the focus on 2022 was never about economic growth. It was always about COVID zero. Uh, it wasn't on stimulating in, in, you know, into weakness. It wasn't about hitting a growth target. Uh, and uh, you know, now that seems obvious, but just, just look back at 2022 and, and people had a very, very hard time coming around to that conclusion. So naturally, what's, what's your 2023, like uh, a general uh, perspective? Like if you're looking at 2023, well, 2023 is going to be a better year for China, but it would hard not hard for it not to be a better year. So everything is about you know the, the perspective and 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 about uh, you know understanding the context of any particular projection. Uh, we are about to enter a cyclical bounce back in China. So the second quarter, for instance, should be should be quite strong. Uh, one of the main, probably the key takeaway we got from China Beijing data in 2022 was that firms told us over and over again, that until COVID zero was gone, they were not going to borrow, they were not going to invest, and they were not going to hire. And that's why back in the spring, when you know Shanghai and some other big cities were shut down, and then the lockdowns were easing, and everyone got real excited about this idea that growth would bounce back, you know, we, we said that's not going to happen. Now, we were even surprised at how the, the absolute lack of any type of meaningful bounce off of that, and the fact that 
growth got actually worse. The, the, the data got worse in July and it got worse into August. So um, why was that? Because firms were convinced that until this COVID zero nightmare was over, they weren't going to go out on a limb and 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 spend and hire when when this could all be ripped away from them. You know, the next day. So COVID zero is over now. So we will see firms reactivating. Uh, people were way too early with this reopening call uh, when COVID zero was pulled off like a bandaid because the economy wasn't reopening then. Everyone was getting sick then. So we were having several months, December, January, even February, where, where everyone's getting sick and recovering. And I think we're going to start to see a more fulsome reactivation of the economy in March, uh, March and April. And that's when things are going to really start uh, to get going. On top of firm reactivation, you know, you'll see some form, some level of, of, of consumer spending, revenge consumer spending, uh, particularly in services. Uh, and then you know you're going to see some level of policy support. You know we're already seeing flows into property. We're, you know we're seeing you know very specific policy to 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 resuscitate uh, you know the, the property sector because it was in such bad shape at the end of, the, of Q4. So early this year, so in the you know second quarter, for instance, we're we're expecting a very nice cyclical bounce back. Uh, the problem is that uh, this is going to be for two to four quarters. A lot of it will depend on how durable this consumer spending is. Uh, we're a little bit skeptical. A lot of it will depend on how much policy support the government is willing to put on top of what is already an organic recovery. So we're very skeptical. They're going to want to just you know, keep, keep stimulating when they've already got growth coming uh, you know, organically. Uh, but, but even so, you're going to have two to four quarters of growth and then you have to look at what the larger picture is. We are still, the, the backdrop is still a, a long-term structural slowdown. Uh, so the way that we usually describe this to clients is this is a head fake year. 2023 is a head fake year for China's growth because once things get going in the second quarter, you're probably going to see a lot of people say, you know, China's back to the old ways. China's back to the old uh, high levels of growth, you know, prioritizing the high levels of growth, back to the old stimulus playbook. Xi Jinping has looked back at his last three years and decided, oh, I was so wrong. We have to do it like, you know, change our ways. None of this is actually happening. Uh, but I think people will be tempted because they'll see better growth numbers and they'll think the past is back. Uh, that's not the case. You know, it's a cyclical bounce back in, yeah, in a long Yeah, actually, I, 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 in some way, I, I agree. Uh, I think, uh, you know, if before 2019, China's growth is already slowing down, partly because, you know, China's China's per capita income is the world average, which means for China to grow, it needs to grow faster than a world average, right? Like its competitor used to be, uh, like, for example, people are very excited about India right now, uh, which, you know, we share the same optimism as well for India. But at India's per capita income level, China was growing, you know, much faster than India at that time. So when China's per capita income is closer to Mexico, then, you know, the growth rate uh, itself is going to be harder. So so definitely there is a structural uh, slowdown in the Chinese economy. And uh, this is, um, a, I mean, it is still a bounce, you know, it, it's a cyclical bounce. And I think 2023 will set a, a somewhat a good benchmark. Uh, in terms of what you know, next uh, 2024, 2025 is coming. And in terms of 2022, I, and I, I very much agree, and even myself, 
um, initially was uh, a bit uh, too optimistic, I have to say. Um, but uh, switched quickly. <laughs> I think I've been, you know, reading your tweets and you know, looking at other people's opinions as well. And I think uh, I- indeed uh, there was a, a little bit too much uh, optimism, particularly too much on this idea that um, press focusing on President Xi, like he he now faces uh, pressure to uh, pivot. I think that's a fundamental misread of China's uh, politic politics. Which you mentioned, you probably said it better than me, and I very very much agree. Um, um. So I think the the monetary and physical stimulus index that you guys came out are pretty interesting. Could you explain a little bit more in terms of how you construct them? Like what what kind of fundamentals you put in? Sure. So from a big picture, um, what we want to do is when you when you're when you're saying that there's there's monetary easing going on, then you want to see what firms are doing. You know, are firms borrowing more? Uh, are the firms selling more bonds? You look at the back back of that and how much how much they're paying, and you're looking also at things like loan rejections. You know, one of the things that's interesting about what we're seeing in property right now is, you know, we're seeing the lowest level of loan rejections we've seen in many years. You know, the government has opened up the spigots. This is the opposite of what we saw. Uh, you know, before six months before the Evergrande crisis, we saw government, uh, we saw the traditional banking system closing the doors to property firms. They all ran scurrying out to shadow finance, borrowing at much higher rates and in distress. So now you're seeing the opposite. You're seeing rates go down. You're seeing loan rejections go down. Uh, but but essentially, what we're tracking in this is we're, we're tracking flows. Where you know our firms borrowing more. Um, you know, and 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 this is important because how many times did we see big announcements about you know gigantic numbers with stimulus last year? You know, with with someone suggesting that there would be big stimulus, big headline numbers of stimulus, and then nothing ever happened. So what we're seeing, you know, like right now is interesting because it's the first activity. You know, kick we've seen for a long time off off stimulus announcements. Fiscal the fiscal uh, index uh, we track fiscal stimulus and we also track fiscal activity. And what we're seeing is that transportation construction firms and and other uh, uh, you know key subsectors related to that are are are, are activating now. So we're, we're seeing flows into them and we're seeing them actually spend you know sp- spend and engage. So um, so it's it's basically tracking. You know what is happening in the system from a credit perspective, and 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 you know if if you want big things to happen, you have to see big things happen in the, in the stimulus and in, indices. And for 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 three years, we haven't seen that, but now we're starting to see some tremors. So th- this will be an interesting year. Thank you. Um, I think for monetary stimulus, um, I I was very much reliant on what you guys uh, put out on the physical stimulus, yeah, but on the monetary. A stimulus index because I, I myself uh, put a significant research in this area. Indeed, I think uh, there was uh, too much. Um, I think the street was very expecting high monetary stimulus, you know, lower interest rates. For that one, I think uh, people did not realize that China's central bank is not like the Fed. It never takes the lead. It is part of the government. So for 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 the for the china central bank its main job is you know um is take care of the the exchange rate you know, china's uh, uh, the the chinese currency um has moved significantly last uh, last year which you know makes uh, in some ways a success because the goal for the people people's bank of china is to have more market driven 
um, foreign exchange rate. Uh, instead, you know, if 10 years ago in the situation like U.S. raising rates, China probably will engage in significant um, currency market operation to try to stabilize, stabilize it. But last year, you can see that they, they didn't. They didn't. So in some way, domestically, they don't really take the lead. They just make sure it doesn't, you know, the worst does not happen. Like when the Evergrande situation came, they do take um, lead in trying to make sure it's not a systematic financial crisis. But aside from that, they, they don't really engage in the uh, significant monetary stimulus, which uh, your index uh, shows uh, as well. So um, what kind of, you know, future innovations on private privately provided Chinese data uh, to help clients uh, that, that you see? Like what kind of, you know, things that, that you guys are strategically considering? Well, look, I mean, you know, we're, we look at the corporate side, you know, we're, we're considering doing more on, on the consumer side. Uh, but I, I think that the key here is is just establishing a long track record so that so that when people see that we're putting out stuff and it doesn't agree with government data, you know, this was our this was our our, our big our, our big uh, hurdle when we first started. We would come out with a story and the government data would come out the story. And uh, people say, well, you guys are probably right. But you know, I had a CEO tell me this. He said, yeah, I believe you. I think you're right. But markets care about what the Chinese official story is, even if it's definitely wrong. So why should we care about what you do? Why do we care about what you say? And that was fine for a while. But what I told him, and it, and it really came back to bite his business, was that the government's projecting stability and the government's projecting you know, these beautiful lines of growth that don't show the volatility in the real economy and, and don't show, don't forecast weakness before it hits. When you run into trouble, and it doesn't matter how good the you know the the economic policymakers are in Beijing, it's very difficult to run a giant economy. You're going to have periods of weakness. You're going to have periods of of, of of contagion. And when those happen, you'll never get a you know a forward looking call in official data that, that things are falling off a cliff. You will with our stuff. So I think it's been it's been more about convincing people that there is a long track record. You know, we have called every macro pivot of the economy for the last decade. And we've called the, the the handful of credit crises, and we've called some of the other big episodes um, that are that, that have been important. And so, um, and also showed things like, look, when when everyone's worried about inflation coming out of China, we showed that's not a worry. They controlled it very well. So there's there's good stories, there's bad stories. You know, there's things in between. It's just about showing that that if you're just looking at Chinese official data, you're not going to get the story you need to invest in the economy. Look at that. Look at our stuff, and then you know. Hopefully, the, this world uh, develops even beyond what we're doing, because what you really need is is more understanding about what's happening. If you have this giant U.S.-China commercial relationship, you need more data, not less data. So, I would hope things are going in that direction. I, I'm not altogether confident that we are, but um, that that would that would be great. Are you also looking more uh, high frequency data or alternative alternative data, like? There's such a broad, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, everybody has their own definition of, of what alternative data in China is. But like, is there some, for example, um, I talked to some friends who use like satellite uh, images to, um, to to analyze or lights uh, intensity in Chinese cities or more higher frequency, like uh, reservations and those kind of things. Are there are there those areas that you are uh, kind of uh, looking or, you know, what, what's your take? 
Uh, I think there's limitations to some of the alternative data that's out there. We've done some real deep dives into stuff, satellites and other things. Um, you know, they they could paint a broad picture. Um, I'm not I'm not sure that they they will provide the type of granularity that you need in order to do true investing. So I, I think we are actually, you know, a generation or two beyond what's being provided in the alternative data space. Uh, look, subway indicators are great, and, but they also told a, a, a story that was, you know, either fake or was misinterpreted early on. You know, when you saw subway indicators come up in Beijing, that was great, but that was Beijing. And it doesn't mean that the economy was bouncing back. It just meant there was movement. So it's a beautiful thing to have that as a piece of the puzzle. But I think one of the problems with alternative data is they think that there's some proxy measurement that, that if you just get hold of that, then you'll be able to, you know, to figure out the economy. Subway indicators were never that. They were helpful in understanding, you know, whether people were hiding from COVID or recovering from COVID or sort of over from COVID, uh, but they have to be pieced together with all the other pieces of data. Uh, in terms of high frequency, um, look, when we started back in Back in 2010, and when we first started providing, uh, you know, data to clients in 2012, we were a quarterly survey, and you know, people said that's impossible. You can't do that. You know, you, you know, we were 1,200 firms. It was, it was, and everyone said, "Oh, this is it's too big. It's impossible." You know, we 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 built that up. We became a monthly survey. When, we, when things started to get really, uh, really tough a few handful of uh, years ago, and when certainly when COVID hit, and we needed weekly data, we wanted to see what was happening in real time as China was, you know, shutting down and getting back up. What was, you know, what was capacity in, in the manufacturing? You know, were they was seventy percent of the industry up, or what was happening in services? What was happening in retail? We started presenting weekly data, and and now we have data in real time on a daily basis when we're surveying. So, so it's very high frequency. Um, you gotta, you gotta. You got to be cognizant of the fact that getting data on a daily basis doesn't mean you can trade data on a daily basis. You, you want the larger picture. So the, the daily data is never as good as the weekly data, which is never as good as the monthly data, which is never as good directionally as the, as the quarterly data. That will always tell the real macro picture. Um, but we have clients, they want more high frequency stuff. They, they, they want to they be able to make quick turns. And, uh, and so, so we, are, we, are, we are doing more of that. Um, how when clients uh, look at your data, uh, how how much granular uh, can they look? Like for example, I have friends who really only trade uh, in certain sectors. Like when they look at your data, how how much granularity could they get uh, a read in a particular industry or sectors? Every single piece of data we've ever collected is on the China Beige Book data analytics platform, and it is. Uh, you know, it's it's it, it's through Azure. Uh, it's it's downloadable through API. It's it's uh, it's you can manipulate one data point or a thousand. So every single piece of data we've ever put out is you could play around with on our platform. So you so what you know you, you have we have very different types of clients because of that you have some people who want to look at what we're doing on the commodity side, some people who want to who want to figure out macro trends. Uh, you know, other people are are trying to figure out the stimulus question because they're not investing in China, but they really want to understand how this will affect the Fed or this will affect, you know, Southeast Asia. And so they're looking at our credit data. So it, uh, the granularity is, 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 is total. They can get every piece of data and play around with it every different way going back 12 years. Probably by, not by company level, right? Maybe like by certain like industry group. Correct. We or... don't, we don't identify any companies. So this is a macro, this is a macro product. We don't, you know, there's no identification of companies or anything. What you could do is you can track things by, you know, country, uh, by region, 
uh, by city tier, uh, by sector, by subsector, by city, by small firms in single cities, by you know private uh, private uh, firms in 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 the Western Province. So there's an enormous amount of granularity uh, on this. Um, but uh, no, we don't we don't identify companies. Uh, that's not part of what we do. So this might be something which um, don't don't meant to as a, a curveball, but there's been so much talk about the China-U.S. technology war. And uh, what are you hearing from your clients? I'm just you know curious. What do you see from your side, and as well as uh, in in D.C. You know, well, because this is really I feel like it's shaping up to be one of the really biggest uh, uh, policy not only policy, but also company uh, question now. Yeah, I mean, this is, a, this is a major issue. I mean, it's one of the reasons I'm, I'm living in D.C. now, because I, I, I want to make sure I understand it completely. That there has been a, there's been a debate, Republicans, Democrats, for, for many, many years in terms of how do you handle technology with China? How do you handle investment flows with China? The idea has always been, do you, well, the debate has always been, do you ring fence China from these things so that U.S. capital or U.S. technology doesn't ultimately come back to, you know, commercially defeat the United States, to, to go into weaponry that will kill American soldiers, uh, to, to fund the party, fund surveillance, fund human rights violations, fund whatever it might be, uh, fund, fund the Chinese army? Um, or, or do you allow these flows to go through uh, because otherwise you'd be provoking, you know, it, it, where you fall. There's, there's no easy answer. And I think the most important thing that's happened in DC over the past couple of years has been that there has been a sort of a, a political de decision by both parties that the, the risks of continuing to interact with China on the level that we have for years uh, are too high. And that, yes, it is provocative to tell China that we are going to ring fence certain advanced technology, semiconductors, AI, quantum technology, uh, from 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 China, uh, but it's it's too big a risk to provide it when there's no way of saying what goes to what goes to the party, what goes to the military, and what's purely civilian. Uh, and so that is the direction we're going uh, from a policy perspective. It's fits and starts, but that's where we're headed, and we're not going to reverse that anytime soon. So it's that's part of understanding the ebbs and flows of this and how U.S. allies are either on board or not on board with certain of these policies. It's, it's critical. Uh, the new, just, you know, we've been talking about export controls and advanced technology. The other big thing is, is that we'll be talking about for the next few years is investment flows. It's it's not understood. Uh, the U.S. government certainly doesn't understand the degree to which U.S. Uh, uh, capital is going into China. The, the, the official series is is probably a fifth of what's actually happening in terms of portfolio investment. You know, where is the money going? It's, it's being routed often through third party countries, but where is it going? You know, what is it doing? Is it assisting with technologies we don't want happening? Is it going to people that we don't want it to go to? There's not enough transparency on that. And so I think that there's more of a recognition that the United States needs to figure these things out and then figure out the policy around it. So right now we're in a very very critical stage in which the United States is trying to figure out what are the true national security risks with uh, with, with with this with, with this uh, open relationship with China. What parts of the relationships need to be uh, decoupled? What parts will never be decoupled? Uh, and 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 that's the big battle being fought right now. It's it's being discussed to the Select Committee on China. Um, but that's that's what we're that's what we're dealing with. 
Thank you. Um, actually, very interesting. You know, when I talk to people of Chinese origin or people in China, they are very pessimistic. Uh, on on this issue, I think uh, for two reasons. One is they do see, you know, the U.S. Uh, uh, sanctions against Huawei, and you know that was really uh the first uh, serious uh I, I would say first serious case of actual you know U.S. using technology to try to uh you know try to make a point in terms of where the technology transfer uh what what's the what's the borderline is now the second question I got asked so much more was about TikTok, um, in terms of you know what's the probability of uh, TikTok and being a national security issue. Do you see that as part of the technology, uh, or it's a separate issue, like in terms of TikTok? I actually see it as a separate issue. Um, now there has to be better policy about Chinese apps in the United States, and there has to be better policy on American apps in the United States. So, so these things are not being thought of very well, and they're certainly not being thought of very, very intelligently by the you know octogenarians we have in Congress trying to figure this out. But TikTok is 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 almost unique in that it is a you know it is a purveyor of news and views. So the risks are significant from from several different directions. You know, is Beijing, uh, you know, is the company hoovering up privacy data that's that's going to Beijing? Is Beijing or is the company itself, you know, manipulating algorithms that's shaping the way that young Americans view certain things? These are very, very touchy, very, very important questions. Uh, it's it's been made more difficult because TikTok has been involved in some bad behavior. You know, they've come out and admitted that they were snooping on reporters to their apps and some stuff. So so. Um, I see it's not divorced from the broader discussion, but TikTok's almost its own subject. This is this is a this is one of the largest, uh, most powerful, uh, you know, social media apps in the world, and there are a lot of questions around it. And I think it's 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 uh, it, it, it is it's it's almost in its own conversation, um, divorced from some of these other issues. Thank you. Yeah, I I tend to agree. These are the two separate issues as well. In terms of also. I, you know, full disclosure, personally, I use WeChat, um, which, uh, you know, because in China, it's impossible without uh, WeChat. Uh, it's used widely in both business and personal. And also in China, the separation of personal and business is so much less clear <laughs> versus in the U.S. So I do use it. And um, I, I think uh, a lot of uh, um, you know, compliance in, in terms of using it. And now it's getting more, but certainly U.S. Uh, probably will also significantly step up. I think WeChat discussion is less because less Americans use it, you know, versus TikTok. But in terms of TikTok, you know, if if they continue to come up with, for example, like a financial payment services, then how do you uh, regulate? Like, uh, are they considered fintech? China's taking the position that it's 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 fintech is financial. It needs to be completely you know regulated like a financial company instead of technology. So all this will be very interesting. Um, thank you so much. Um, uh, I know you are on Twitter and for people and I'm also you know starting last year uh, to be on Twitter and for people who are interested uh, to hear our podcast that uh, you can find out find us on a Wisdom Tree website on uh, platforms like uh, Apple, Spotify, um, and on Twitter as well. If people want to find out more about China Beach Book, um, how should they go find it? 
Well, we try to share um, our views regularly on the ma- you know, major publications, Bloomberg and CNBC and Wall Street Journal, et cetera. We are on Twitter, uh, at China Beige Book. Uh, we, have a, we have a LinkedIn, uh, a lot of LinkedIn uh, content that we put out um, on our China Beige Book page and, and, and my page personally. Um, and, and on our website, we, we go over a lot of these issues and we have every single media interview we've ever done. I think we're over 1,200 at this point since we started because the, the biggest problem with the China watching industry is that people you know, don't check their homework. And, and so you say things and then you, you know, things go another way and you try to bury it. So we were very, we're very upfront about saying, here are our views. We stick with them. Check our homework over time. Everything we've ever done is pretty much on on the uh, on the on the website. So check out uh, chinabeigebook.com too, and uh, that might be of interest to some people. Great, thank you so much, um, and we hope to um, continue to talk with you. I think uh, ultimately, uh, like like we, you know, like even the Fed said, you know, ultimately data drives the policy, and you know, for China, it's. Even uh, even though I understand a lot of people have uh, you know um, problem with the official data, it, it, among the official data Chinese uh, government releases, someone some some of the series are more problematic than the others, mainly because the the ones that can be also validated by you know private uh, uh, like you know vendors like you or, or other uh, data vendors. So uh, for example, like investment. Chinese government official data investment is uh, always somewhat suspect because it's so easy to manipulate. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we hope to talk to you, you know, again and see how uh, China's uh, uh, you know, economy uh, this year is definitely a very critical year. It will be the first year of President Xi's second ten year. Uh, so he's he's definitely looking at their own data as well. In terms, I, I know that. Um, you know, uh, economic growth is never the number one. You know, the number one is the party stays in power. But to stay in power, economic growth is part of the equation too. So we will definitely uh, continue to discuss. And again, you know, policies out of D.C. is going to be so um, influential as well. So thank you so much. And hopefully we talk again. Thank you, Li Chen. It was a lot of fun. Thank you.